Today we're going to talk about grit, the genius complex we all have, and the importance of grit. We're going to have an interview with Daryl Babbage, and our composer profile is on George Friedrich Handel. This is Early Music Monday. So we're going to switch up the format a little bit, and we're going to talk about the composer profile first. And we're not going to go as in-depth into specific pieces by this composer in terms of here's an intermediate, here's a beginner, here's an advanced piece, etc., etc. We're still going to put those things on our blog, but we're going to use the composer profile to really talk about the life of some of these composers and get to know them. It's like they're old friends, you know. So... Today, we're going to talk about George Friedrich, Friedrich, depending on how you say it, Handel. Now, the cool thing about Handel that I relate to is throughout his, I mean, he's German-born, spent some time studying music in Italy and in France, and then he went to London, and it was all over. And he sold himself and married London. And that's pretty much what happened to me. I became an Anglophile hardcore when I went to London. There's something about that city, man, I tell you. So cool. So, Handel is Iron Man, too. Man, we'll get into his life, which is nuts. But the reason, another reason why I love Handel is because he perfectly exemplifies this phenomenon that we get as human beings around the concept of genius and the counter to that phenomenon, which is grit. So there's this amazing book called Grit by Angela Duckworth, and she gives this equation for success. There's two equations, really, but it's it's one equation. Talent times effort equals skill, and then skill times effort equals achievement. So her main point is that effort counts twice, We always tend to think of these composers, even Handel, who started composing when he was 10, and Mozart, you know, they're child prodigies and they're genius. And we think about, well, Handel completed the Messiah in 24 days. It's three hours long. That's incredible. He's a genius. And while that may be true, he may have been blessed with extraordinary talent He develops skill with a great amount of effort, an unyielding effort. And then that skill, he continued to put effort into that skill to reach achievement and success. So his life exemplifies grit. Most early music composers exemplify grit. Obvi. Obvi. Because it's early music. Duh. So this might be a familiar story to some of you, but his dad did not want him to do music because it wasn't, quote, a profitable career. I don't know how many students I've had that say that. Now, full disclosure, I can't personally relate to that because my parents were both super supportive, for which I am eternally grateful. But I feel, and I I feel like that kind of makes me more of the exception than the rule, though. I've heard a lot of people who either of their own fruition or pressure from their parents 
decide to do something other than music because it's not a financially reliable career. Which, I mean, they're not wrong, so whatevs. But his mom encouraged him, so he kept practicing secretly. I just picture him like running around playing music. Like, how do you keep that from? How do you keep that from your parents in those days? It's like every the world was way quieter. There's no TV. You can't like, oh, dad's watching the game, so I can hurry and like play this acoustic guitar really quietly. It's like, how how do you practice quietly? And unless unless I guess it's not at home. You're like, yeah, dad, I'll be uh, studying at school, and then he's practicing music. Who knows? But the point is, is he put in the work, effort, effort, effort. So while he was 10, he ended up being discovered by a, a composition, a composer who ended up giving him composition lessons. And so we think, holy crap, he's 10 years old, already composing? He's a genius. But I mean, people got married at 15. So were they like more emotionally mature? Well, maybe. They didn't have TikTok, so their brains were probably developed faster. But I'm sure the roughness of, like, surviving made you grow up a little faster. Who knows? The point is, our perception of age is different. So he was 10 years old, but again, he worked and he wrote a ton. He had several appointments as a violinist and as an organist. It's very cool. So if you think about him in terms of genius versus effort— and versus grit, he, he had just this incredible output throughout his life. He was still, when he was younger, <clears throat> even his first couple operas, like, they didn't put him on the map anywhere. He wasn't this Mozart where he was three years old and everybody in Europe already knew who he was. So what put him on the map was his output, the amount of output, the effort plus the skill that he was developing. So in the in the book, Angela Duckworth talks about this really famous potter named Warren McKenzie. Him and his wife both dabbled in a wide, wide array of artistic endeavors, and, and they became kind of renaissance people of all these different art forms, painting, drawing, sketching, sculpting, potting, all, all this stuff. And they were kind of amateur in all these areas instead of mastering just one avenue. So in the end, he decided, I'm just going to focus on one. So he ended up throwing over tens of thousands of pots. And every time he got better, and his better ones got better, and the ones that got like recognition became better and better and better, but he produced a lot of bad ones. And it's the same thing with Handel. He showed his grit through his skill plus effort. So, I mean, think about this. He composed 42 operas, 25 oratorios, 120 plus cantatas, 18 concerti grossi, uh, which has a modern equivalent. You could almost think of it kind of like a symphony. It's an or- orchestral genre. And then 12 organ concertos. He was a machine, like Iron Man. But clearly, it's his grit because some of those oratorios are not very good. No offense. I like crossing myself to make sure I don't offend Handel on the other side. <laughs> but and, and 42 operas, I mean, there's no way every single one of those is genius, right? 
he just stuck with his passion and his number one goal and vision of being a very successful composer. So after his, you know, kind of upbringing, he invent eventually enrolled in law school because his father convinced him to, but he dropped out soon after and ended up pursuing music because his passion could not be contained. <laughs> it's so cool. But again, that single vision, that single passion, not just like a great love for it, but his number one focus in his career was to compose music, great music. And he just stuck with it, stuck with it, even after failures, even after, I mean, the whole reason why we have Handel's Messiah, the great and famous Messiah, is because operas started to lose their luster. Like British audiences didn't really like it anymore. It's kind of like the Rolling Stones (laughs) in the late 90s trying to write music. Like, we're not really interested in that anymore. <laughs> but in the 60s, they had their thing, and then all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, hey, Mick, you might want to, I don't know, put a shirt on and maybe just maybe just write something different or something, you know. But he, so then he switched and said, okay, well, what about oratorios? And really, that's just putting an opera in disguise, <laughs> redressing it a little bit. That's like hiding avocado in a giant salad or guacamole, I guess, in a giant salad, but by making it less. I don't know. That analogy didn't make any sense. Whatever. Oratorio is just a non-staged opera without costumes. They were way cheaper, and they became super popular, and they were usually sacred. So he he adjusted his short-term goals to meet that one long-term passion. And that's what made Handel great, is that he was willing to adjust. He was really practical. He was able to rework some old stuff, put things together. He saw kind of where the trends of music were going and kept pursuing that one thing, the one thing. So was he naturally talented? Probably above average, yeah. But that's not what made him truly great and what makes us still talk about him today. It's the fact that he had grit. And but we like but that's but that's not that's not as like fun. That's not as satisfying to say, oh, he was just born this genius. The mystery surrounding genius is way more attractive. And <laughs> maybe it's because as uh Angela says in her book, maybe that's because it somehow covers up our subconscious fear of being inept and insignificant and unsuccessful. So maybe we should succeed more. So the mystery makes it easier for us to accept. Who knows? So when you think about him as Iron Man and extra grit. I mean, he suffered from anxiety and depression, but would like laugh whenever bad things would come his way, just like Robin Williams. So he's like Robin Williams and Iron Man. He suffered a stroke, which left his right hand paralyzed, 
but he quickly and miraculously recovered. So, like Boromir from Lord of the Rings, he's getting shot with his first arrow, still still cruising. Some scholars say it might have been the result of lead poisoning because of, like, cheap wine, but, I don't know, tomato, tomato, does it really matter? It just sucks. It would just suck both ways. But, again, he recovered super quick, super miraculous. So he continued to write. Then, all of a sudden, he suffered a second stroke and recovered from that again. There's the second arrow right at Boromir. Ouch. Ouch. And then he started to lose sight in his left eye, and eventually his right and went completely blind. And then there's the third arrow. But he kept composing after that and conducting. And it's just like, you can picture him just like crawling in this battlefield. It just keeps going. What a freaking boss. George Handel, coming in clutch. And that's why I love Handel. Because he was blessed with this kind of extraordinary talent, but then exemplified extraordinary grit on top of the talent. And that grit determines success way more than natural-born talent does. So if you're feeling a little discouraged in whatever it is that you're passionate about in your career, all you have to do is reset your focus on your why, like Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, on your why and your passion and what is your end, ultimate, umbrella, big, general, vague goal. What is it? And then what are you going to do to get there and set little smaller goals, you know, one smaller goal from there, then one smaller. Then what are you going to do yearly? What are you going to do monthly? What are you going to do daily, weekly? And reset yourself and tell yourself that you're going to have grit because that grit is what will determine your success. And you can totally do it. I think it's amazing. And it's really motivating for me um, to realize, hey, you know, if you get setbacks and starting a pro choir is hard, and feeling like nobody on earth knows who Sound of Ages is. And that's okay. The grit of every day, keep going, keep going, is going to make it. Just like Handel. So if you want some references and some links to some specific pieces of music that are really good for emerging choirs, check out our website, www.soundofageschoir.com slash podcast. You'll see the blog post of this episode, and you'll see, you know, on there, links to scores. And you can look up those pieces, because he wrote a lot that's not very well known that are really good for emerging choirs. So if you don't have an orchestra, that's okay. Don't shy away from, from George Friedrich Handel. And I will just mention, everyone knows Messiah, and you know the hallelujah chorus and all that but if you really if you want an example of what an oratorio is i wouldn't actually use messiah as the poster child for oratorio not that it's not great i conduct it every christmas and i love it i love it 
But as far as oratorios go, it doesn't really make any narrative sense. It's just kind of a bunch of vignettes, like little scenes. It's like the musical company, if you've ever heard of that. It's like a bunch of scenes that happen, but there's no plot. There's no there's no story. It's just kind of this these events. That's kind of Handel's Messiah. Judas Maccabeus is also a biblical story, and it is much more narrative. You can follow the story. It's like an opera with no costumes or staging. And you can, like, follow the story. Oh, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. Whereas Messiah, you're just like, oh, they're just singing about Jesus. So if you want to learn more about oratorio, you know, and you want kind of a really good Handelian example, look up Judas Maccabeus. As Kevin Malone would say from The Office, it's very good. So our interview today is with Professor Daryl Babbage. Now, from the time I interviewed Professor Babbage to today when the episode is airing, he has been appointed as the head of the voice department at the Juilliard School, which is insane. He's amazing. And for the exact same reasons that we just talked about, I think he's been blessed with above average, you know, extraordinary natural talent. But he doesn't have a doctorate. He didn't start, as he'll say, he's kind of a late bloomer, according to himself, and went into doing music as a profession later in his life, but progressed really fast because of his grit. So Daryl exemplifies perfectly the balance of natural talent plus grit, talent plus effort equals skill, skill plus effort equals achievement. And now he is the head of Juilliard School of the voice department. It's insane. So, excuse me, he has a lot of really great things to say. He is a handle, he is a handle fanatic. Um, And so I want to hear some of his thoughts about Handel's music more specifically, and his thoughts on singing, um, all those things. So we'll go now to our interview with Professor Daryl Babbage. Let's put it that way, but that's okay. Um, out there, uh, good. You know, I I actually haven't <laughs> I haven't been to Juilliard for a year because I've right. been. Here. I did go back a few weeks ago to try this experimental teaching between two rooms, and I didn't really like it. I, it was all mic'd, and I couldn't hear their voice properly. It was very frustrating. It's just sure. But look, I teach this. I do this all day long, Skype and Zoom and FaceTime. And, and I actually like it. Really? I do. And um, I like getting out of bed <laughs> and not getting on a two-hour commute. My, I have a, like a four-hour commute there and back normally. Seriously? So. Jeez. That is, that is I, no fun. Commute right now. So I'm, there's no complaint to my end. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Commute's way better. <laughs> That's great. How are you? Oh, things are things are good. Things keep chugging along. So we've been lucky. It hasn't been anything crazy. I mean, yeah. anything with masks, but we've been able to still meet the Sound of Ages choir I started. We're small enough. We've been able to kind of do stuff still. So and that's not like without masks. So we rehearse with them, and then we stand far enough ish apart to kind of just like. Yeah get a recorded take without it and then put them back on. You know, my high school students have been singing with masks all year 
and it's not prove like we just are used to it now but but there is a distinct difference in the subtleties to the sound that you hear it is distinct no one can tell me any different that there are serious overtones that you're missing and I, and I think it probably you know I forget probably and I'm like okay you're swallowing the sound but maybe they're not you know maybe it's just maybe they're not and, and okay. they're they're gonna be all singing so bright when they take them off that it'll be like <laughs> yeah exactly it'll just be like insane <laughs> well I notice you know like you know the, the, people are very heavily masked here in New Jersey yeah. and New York and I mean, I'm grateful for that, but you know, I went to Shake Shack last night. Took my daughter to, and there's lots of protocol there too, right? Sure. But like, which shout? I'm shouting at this girl about what I want to order. I mean, just because I'm just ordering. She said, what right. And I shout again. It's like we won't know how to talk to people. Just <laughs> yeah, whoa. Okay, you're like, that's <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So, um, and it's the, a world right now. Yeah. Well, and what has it been like? I mean. Because how, how did you teach for a full year at Juilliard before the lockdown? Uh, so this, I'm in the middle of my second year. So I gotcha. taught from like September through to March, right? Gotcha. So I was like halfway through the year on campus. And now I'm in my halfway through the second year. Gotcha. And what, what has it been like in ter- just in terms of teaching out there compared to at BYU? I mean, I'm sure it's tons, but or maybe yeah. not. No, I mean, my son asked me that day, who do you prefer to teach, BYU students or Juilliard students? It's the same, there's no difference. But yes, you do get the caliber is stronger, right? You're going to get the caliber. Um, They're very lucky the way they recruit. They, you know, they can choose the best voices. Right. I mean, they're very fortunate to have that. Um, But they are a little bit more driven too than the ones I um, saying all that, I really, really miss BYU. I mean, I have, you know, I very fond memories of that. And I was very upset when I left. But um, yeah, they're more driven. Sure, sure. Very like serious, really serious about yeah studies. And it wasn't always the case, you know, at BYU. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've I really enjoy it. I, I yeah, I enjoy. I'm sure to someone who like I mean. To someone who's super passionate, it kind of doesn't really matter. Like I love teaching at Spanish Fork High School just as much as the junior high and just as much as Sound of Ages. Yes. Like I, I love teaching. And look, and I love yeah. It. So I'm sure it's similar. It is. I taught someone tonight who's a private student who's mediocre voice and trying to work through things and an older guy. Right. He said, Oh Daryl, how you know what do you is it difficult you teaching me when you teach you know and I said I never think like that and actually I said I love progress period so that's that's what I care about yeah it is it's nice to have you know voices that you can work with I said but I have students at Julia that I do not enjoy teaching I do not there's one or two that I go oh I have to teach them because they don't have any drive they actually don't some don't have drive or they think they're really good and don't need help right so yeah yeah there's all that so teaching you're right i don't i if someone really wants to um sing and you hear progress every week yeah win-win isn't it yeah and that's the best yeah so i really appreciate you taking the time again i'm sure doing zoom and then doing this and it's just probably a lot in one day and it's late there, but I, I'd love to 
hear maybe a little bit of how you got into singing in the first place. Like, yeah, that's a good question. I'm a late bloomer on many levels, you know, m marriage, having kids, as well as my career. And yeah. um, I, I play the piano since I was eight. So I always play the piano and I, I, you know, I like music, but not to a high degree. But I, um, I, in England, you take grades one through eight in piano. That's done privately. You can do that. Yeah. And before my mission, I was going to take grade eight and then that didn't happen. So I came back off my mission. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't know what the long story, but it looks like I'm you might get the long one. I'm here for it. <laughs> no, I might bore myself. I'm going to try and, you know, make it shorter. Um, came back off my mission and then did grade eight. So I was not young. I was probably 21, 22. Yeah. But then I, I was, I worked as a clerk at, you know, lawyers, places, lots of, you know, um, administrative places. And uh, I worked at a lawyers and they said, oh, you might be really good as a legal executive. And I don't know what the comparison is in America, but um, anyway. Um, and they said, go to a careers advice and see if you can get help as to how you can study to become a legal executive. And I went to the careers advice and I sat there and I said, I'm here to ask about how to become a legal executive. I said, but secretly, I'd love to study music. And I was 22, 23. Wow. So I've not done any university yet or anything like that. And in England back then, you left school at 16 and then you just had to find your own job. So I was a clerk yeah. forever. Um, and the careers advisor said to me, there's nothing in music, don't even go down that road. <laughs> and now I think, oh, I'd love to talk to you right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, for real. <laughs> I mean, not necessarily monetarily, but that I'm in a career that I love, you know, and yeah. I've made a career out of it. But it's, it was that that made me walk away thinking, no, I want to do music. It was, that was the catalyst in a sense for me to go, no, actually I want to study music. Yeah. So I play the piano. So I, it was probably like a year or so later, actually, I was then working in Dover, lived in Kent. I actually worked at the Channel Tunnel. You're going to get the long, you're getting, you're getting the long haul. <laughs> I love it. It's great. <laughs> I worked at the Channel Tunnel in Kent. Anyway, and I remember lying on my bed and saying this, this kind of revelation came to me, I need to study music seriously, go to a music school. And that's what happened. And I applied, I took three singing lessons from a friend of mine in Bournemouth, a good teacher. And I auditioned at the London College of Music. And I, by then I was a mature student, I was 24. Oh, wow, yeah. And in England, when you're 24, you're, you are a mature student and you get a grant. They give you a, like a free student loan. So it was kind of a win-win for me. Yeah, sure. Anyway, so I went to London College of Music, studied singing. They then went bankrupt, the London College of Music. So it's not the Royal College or the Royal Academy, but the London College, they went bankrupt. We then, we then transferred to Ealing University. Um, then I auditioned for the Royal Music in Manchester, England, which is a big music school, and they they, they very big into opera. So I transferred there as a freshman again. Oh, wow. So I was 
27 as a freshman. <laughs> nice. Doing the doctorate route. <laughs> yeah, I don't even have, but I didn't have a doctorate. I don't have a doctorate. I have three degrees. But um, so I was 27. And it was only then that I thought, oh, I think I, I might like this. I think this is good. Because even at the London College of Music, I just did it for fun. I didn't know that I'd be having a career in service. I didn't think that way. Right, right. I went to my first opera when I was 24. Wow. So it just was like, and then I was like, yeah, I'm going for this. This is yeah. great fun. And what was great at being 24 is that I wasn't 18 not knowing really what to do. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And, you know, I wasn't going to be partying around. I was right. there to study hard. And so I was at Royal Northern. And then I worked at Glyndebourne Festival Opera while I was a student, which is a really big opera company in England and got some good opportunities performing there. Um, yes, that's, I mean, that could give you a whole, the whole thing. Oh, yeah. but that's, that, that was me getting into singing and that's how I got into it. So, uh, and then I realized my voice progressed quite exponentially in classical singing and that's where that happened. That's awesome. And, and I'm, I'm sure in your time there, I mean, this kind of can take us a couple of different roads and so it might not necessarily be a smooth transition, but when you were doing that, I'm sure you were singing in choirs because I know you sang with BBC singers, correct? And so- I did. Yeah, actually, it was a BBC Symphony Chorus. So oh, Symphony Chorus. Singers, which is different because Singers is is the elite. I wasn't in that choir, but yeah. The uh, but but you've sung. I'm sure through your time, you sang in choirs and solo work both. Mm -hmm. What were some things? I guess you as a teacher now, what would you tell yourself as a student then, who's like doing solo work and ensemble work, kind of simultaneously, and how do you keep the the machine yeah yes what would I tell myself that's a good question that's a good question um I would tell myself that you can do both but you need to navigate both slightly differently to each other sure um but I was I loved being in choirs but um I, I don't think it it affected me that much I think I knew how to navigate both yeah um, my voice did get bigger each year, pretty much as a soloist. Sure. And then navigating in a choir got a little bit more difficult because I was using, I guess, not different muscles, but, you know, the um, muscles were being utilized in a different way. And I was using my resonators, you know, in a bigger way. And you can't do that in a choral setting. But I guess because I'd always been in choirs I was used to that so I was in the Bournemouth Symphony Chorus that was my first big chorus oh, wow. BBC Symphony Chorus and the Philharmonia Chorus in yeah. London then I also did um, Radio 3 I think they still have it but they have their daily services so it's like I think like 10 o'clock in the morning and it's a live um religious service of singing it's like music in the spoken word oh gotcha. but daily on radio three bbc radio three and that was actually later when i lived in manchester but we used to do that every day and that was interesting because you literally got the music that morning wow read it sometimes you have to read scriptures and you're kind of on the fly and i remember we did um messiah chorus which one was it 
I can't remember, and I should remember, but I can't. It wasn't for Unto Us, but it was one similar with only eight voices. And oh, wow. we just, yeah, and it was like, oh, you just have to be on your game. You could not not be on your game. You know? Yeah, no way. Yeah, so I think it was eight voices, maybe 10 or 12, but I think, I think it was a very small number. Anyway, so that was exciting. That totally kept me on my toes. Yeah. But I, I did both. Yeah, I was able to navigate both. And it was at Glyndebourne Opera Festival that I really got to use my solo chops. And that, I mean, I think we're talking about Handle Day, maybe. Yes, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we'll, yes. We'll, we'll get there for sure. Well, maybe. And <laughs> So you can go, if that's where you wanted to go, go there right now. No, no, I, it was just Glyndebourne is where that all happened. But um, so, yeah, but I was in the Glyndebourne Fettel Opera Chorus. So oh. that was an operatic chorus, mm. and you would be used to sing small roles in the operas they were doing that summer season or cover big roles. So yeah. anybody in the chorus was potential soloist. Oh, wow. So that's like all everyone's kind of top of their game kind of thing. Yeah, so it's probably the best opera chorus in the UK to be in because you get treated as future soloist. Right, right, you know, yeah. They, they're looking out for your future career. So Yeah. But I was still a student then, so that was nice to have that while being a student. Some, you know, were not students, but I was lucky to be able to do both. Both. Yeah, that's great. So before before we get to handle, because I have, oh, I have so so many questions, but to, to get maybe just a little bit detailed of if you were talking to your to a current student about navigating you know ensemble singing versus soloist singing what what are just a few brief like specific navigations you'd tell them because because you know there, there's such this how oh, I wish there wasn't but this kind of battle between voice teachers and choir teacher choir directors of just yeah and, and you, you know, know it's interesting I think that I think there will always be there is like a there is that battle, there's like a silent battle, and then there's a, you know, one that is open and discussed. And I, I was really grateful for the last few years, because that's how I got to know you was the London Study Abroad Choral yeah. Summer Program that I was invited by Rosalind Hall to be on, as well as Andrew Crane. Yeah. Um, and that was an eye opener for me. And I think it was an eye opener too, for the choral students to kind yeah. of navigate technique period, right? Yeah. Because I think good technique should be able to navigate anything from jazz, musical theater, choral, blending in choirs, all those things with a really good technique. Yes, is that, is everyone able to do that all the time? No, but I think it's a, it's a learned process. So, and my, my take on it, Cameron, is that um, if you really know how to access all your support and all your resonators, of course, not talking technique today, but like if you understand just that basic concept, which does take a time, take a while to understand, then you have a better way of navigating dynamics, um, navigating a cleaner color, a cleaner sound. If I don't have those, then my larynx is going to write to try and sing a high note or a soft note. Right. Right? And the whole goal for me basically is to keep the larynx level in essence. Yeah. So that you're able to navigate the high and the low and the middle and make them sound sweet. Um, and for this voice to carry and for then the voice 
to blend. So um, yeah, I, I think mean, it's easier said I, than done, right? This is I can say all those things, but that's generally how I feel about it. And and I think that that's exactly what you, you know because that that study abroad experience was eye opening for me as well. And then hearing you know Dr. Andy Crane's kind of collaboration with Jamie Rhodes. Yes, getting more specific into that really helped me realize that she's saying the same thing of everything is aligned and then to change your aesthetic, you just change the shape of the tube a little bit. Right. And that and that's really and so I, I fully agree. And to think about it in terms of just the, the support and the make your resonators working is a really good vision yeah. for for students and everyone just okay, are the resonators working or are you high larynx up under your tongue yes. kind of thing because i think you know and i i do tend to attract bigger voices in the solo virtuosic world and i don't know why that the case but it just seems to be that way but yeah i have discovered that their access of dynamics and you know method of archie all those things that we um talk about is when they have opened up everything and then they're able to go back down again and play with it if they start from nothing I'm not talking necessarily actually about big voices but any voice but sure I have the experience with big voices because if one sings off the voice that's just limited right 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 and so we have to find the way to open it up and then cut back down again yeah and so and so I, I guess that kind of already answers my question about kind of singing singing this early handle stuff but but um I guess, because I don't really think that there should be that big of a difference in terms of the production between early music and contemporary music, whether it's, whether it's solo or ensemble singing. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, this handle business, <laughs> um, um, what, what kind of, I don't even know what I'm trying to ask. I might have to edit this part out because it's, it's rattling around in there. No, that's fine. But I guess when, what do you do then, I guess, with your students to kind of break down that stereotype of, you know, if you're going to sing early music, you need a light voice. If you're going to sing late music, you need a big voice. And, or do you, or do you hold up that because of the way the music acts? Or, you know, how do you kind uh, of do that? That's a good question. And that you struggle with how to ask the question is because I will struggle with how to formulate the answer because it's nuanced. But I believe that's a good question. I believe there's a good answer. And I tell you, I can tell you things that you might hear me say as a teacher. Sure. Which might answer the question, but. Yeah, that's great. For example, in the recent past, I'll have, I, I've had a few students that have big voices and big voices can mean just physiologically the instrument is just a big sound right. it creates bigger sounds now at the end of the day it doesn't matter what size voice you have what you need is the carrying power which is to do with resonance and ping and all those things that yeah. you can have small voice whatever that means but it can still carry at the back of the metropolitan opera mm -hmm. But I will get big voices that come into my studio that are, that are honking away and it's ugly and there's a big vibrato and that's, there's nothing impressive about that, right? Right. When they learn to align it, it's quite often I will say to them, can you not sing it as if this is a Bach piece or a Handel piece? Yeah. Because your instrument will like the way of it 
being aligned, you don't have to swoop and portamento all over the place and right. have the voice. Your voice speaks to the instrument that you have. So yeah. quite often I'll say to someone that sings Puccini or Verdi, I go, can you not sing like it's a handle piece or you know, anything Baroque? And usually that's when they align the voice. So, yeah. it, you know, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think, um, look, my voice lends more to bark and handle. I think that's just my instrument. And the biggest I would sing is Mozart. Right. Um, and I've tried all the Verdi and Puccini and I can do it spits and spurts, but it's not my, not my right. voice. And I think that's interesting because maybe it is just then an aesthetic thing or like a psychological thing that they do to, to align it properly. Yes. Regardless of aesthetic, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, they're not maybe like forcing their air out. Maybe, maybe it's just that they kind of align that pressure with the right proportion right. In, the in the where it's supposed to be in the first place. That's right. And that's, that's how I see it. Now, there are certain singers that handle suits them more than it does between and vice versa. But I, I have quite a few students that can do, you know, I have one student in Germany who did handle right through to Wagner in one year, you know, so, you know, if you can get, get aligned the voice, it can work. Um, I think with handle, I mean, it's a specialized style. I mean, you have to understand the style, but I think vocally you can get anything from a very, um, I don't know what you would call it, but a small voice that can do it. And it's quite easy for them actually, because they can navigate all the coloratura and all the melismas because they have a small voice. Bigger voices are diff difficult, more difficult. Right. But if they can, and I've seen it happen many times, if they can learn technically to navigate coloratura, then that's a win-win they've got better technique yeah. so i always i have every student of mine do handle i mean people will contest that because i'm a handle freak it could be but it helps every voice too so yeah <laughs> so speaking to that then i know you you say that you're not a handle scholar but i i'm i'm not oh. a scholar of anything i'm just a big time right. nerd, nerd about everything so <laughs> so what 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 triggered that whole of the whole study abroad group we were just like daryl loves handle like especially for us who had never taken from you or didn't know you i was like all right yeah like handle this is awesome yeah. <laughs> that, that is my go-to and i listen to all kinds of music right i like right. i'm quite eclectic in my listening of music and i mean that it can, it can be anything right. from billy eilish truly uh, to to right. you know uh, to um I don't know. I can't think of a, a contrast there. about Billie Eilish just uh, like a couple months ago or something. I saw you, you posted things oh. about. Maybe I did, but it's funny. But I, I <laughs> this is discussion for another day. But she has a really, really good voice, and I think people would contest that. But if you listen carefully, it's very well. Yeah. the way she navigates it. Anyway, that's discussion yeah, another yeah. day. It's I would not... love to talk about it. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about it another that's day. The voice, and it's not that I listen to her all day long. In fact, probably hardly at all, but I, I'm quite happy to listen to her. And I can listen to, um, you know, um, Bluegrass another minute. So, but yeah. Handle, I can do 24-7 is really my point. So I can't, I could do 24-7 Handle and never tire of it. And I can cry over an aria and I'll cry the next day over the same aria. It's that's just what he does to me. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> but um but i've i mean i listen to handle all my life you know different ways you know you, you, the the 
water music and um, Messiah, you know, who doesn't love them, love Messiah? But um, it was actually at Glyndebourne Festival Opera, there was a production of Theodora, which actually in essence is an oratorio that for the first time in 1998, whenever it was, they made it into an opera, they staged oh, wow. it. Cool. And uh, it was the most moving thing I've ever seen, I think, and just stunning singing. And it totally made me think, oh, I want to find out more because you think of Messiah and the water music and um, and we don't know much else. Right, right. Um, so Theodora made me think, okay, what else is out there? And I mean, there's hundreds, hundreds of arias. And yeah. I'm still discovering new pieces. I mean, wow. so uh, of, of his that just moved me. And tonight, tonight, literally, they're doing, uh, um, at Juilliard, they're doing Teseo, which is um, uh, an opera uh, by Handel, and they're doing it at Juilliard, and they're actually staging it, and they're doing it with masks and all the things that yeah. are very sad to have to watch. But, um, but I saw their rehearsal tonight, and I'm not that familiar with the music. Right. But I heard the overture and I'm like, oh, oh this is amazing. <laughs> so it doesn't stop, right? So, yeah. so you know, I can always go bit handle. But it was Theodora that got me into it. And so I've just, I guess I just listened to a lot of it and I know what I like. Like when students ask me about, you know, how do I ornament the return of the A section in an aria? Yeah. I think I know a couple of rules, but I know what, I've heard so many that I know what's tasteful and what's right. I just know instinctively what's right, but I couldn't write anything down and tell you. I just know when I hear it, what's right and what, what's not right. Yeah. Especially what's what's kind of idiomatic for, for different settings, whether it's a secular story or a right, right. sacred story, I'm sure yes. kind of some subtle differences. And Yes, and quite often it is to do with the emotion. It's not just... You know, people talk about, Ross, you know, Rossini as a composer, he wrote in all the ornaments. There's lots of coloratura, so that was, he right. wrote, you don't embellish it yourself, you do what is written. With Handel, which I always find remarkable, is that you can embellish it yourself, dependent on the word or the mood of the piece. And I can, you, you can be, I think Handel's one of the most, most emotive composers, because... Right. You could play with that and change it every night. You could the next night you could sing the same aria and uh, interpolate it differently to what you would like. And I find his music very um, emotive to me, more so yeah. than Puccini and Verdi. So you know, right. and there's something. Well, and I think there's something to that. I think there's something to the the art of uh, kind of uh, almost improvisatory expression. Yes. That, that's that's really inherent in early music in general. Yes, that, that kind of has made a resurgence back in kind of late twentieth century and jazz and yeah. contemporary totally. music. And so I, I just think that's almost one of the most relevant things about that kind of early music is how much it's left up to the individual performer and and you know you not, right. everything's not prescribed for you. No, but we talk about early music and Baroque and we, we generalize has been my uh, observance of, of students over the years. They just think it's boring.
No, right. it's very speed and there's nothing you can do with it. But it's good. Well, you've not discovered yet yet because you wouldn't say that and you know yeah. if you knew about it. So even even when we went to in in London at uh, St John Smith Square, I think when we went and saw Orfeo, Ramon yes. it's like yes, that's so expressive. Oh my goodness! Like you, totally. it's it's its own thing. And and I think once you come to that, you start to see those expressions that get kind of carried over. Uh, very much so. I agree. Yeah. So when you're when you're when you're giving a student handle, uh, because re regardless of maybe your personal feelings about it, what are some technical things that may be inherent to handles music that are maybe trickier or not as tricky compared to maybe other time periods, or do they yeah. does that not exist really? No, it does. So handle for me, so. Uh, when I teach 18, 19 year old freshman students, the diet normally is art song. Sure. And not to necessarily move towards operatic arias just yet. But I am always chomping at the bit because I go, no, you should just try some opera arias. You should just go for it. Because <laughs> I tell you why, I tell you why. That's because they, again, they open up the instrument and they discover what they're able to do. Sure. I don't believe in pushing and blowing a sound. Of course, sometimes they might do that and they shouldn't. I don't teach that. No one should teach that. But right. there are sometimes there is an aria that opens up the voice and they discover their voice that there's no other way of discovering unless they sing something bigger. Um, Handel was that wonderful middle step where you could offer a Handel aria in a jury and not be told off for singing an aria. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it, so open up the voice in a really healthy way. And plus most arias will have the B section, which is, so you, the A or the B, one is gonna be fast, one slower. Yeah. But often you can get a faster section, usually in the B section. So they're learning, they're learning coloratura and how to move the voice yeah. in a great way. In an art song, you don't get that. You right. very rarely will get that. So it opened up the voice. They got to find ways to utilize the voice in a lot more immediate way. Because I always find it a shame if a senior student auditioning for a master's program doesn't have anything to offer except, um, you know, art song that keeps them in a certain vocal pocket. Now, I'm not down playing art song at all. Right, right. What should I mean, it's amazing, like stunning repertoire. But I'm saying move into... That and handle is the right, the wonderful middle ground. Yeah, that's awesome. And oh man, what about his music? Kind of, I guess you just said, you know, between the A and the B section. Do you think that there are maybe, because um, I know a lot of times from a choral director's perspective, when I think of like masterworks versus individual pieces. All, a lot of these masterworks by composers, Handel and Mozart, particularly, their, their, their parts are written in just like almost the extremes of the range and they just kind of sit there. But then when they do like Avevedum Corpus by Mozart is just what pops into my head is, is yeah. a little bit more subdued. Is Are there things like that in the music itself where in Handel where it's like, you know, sacred versus secular or aria versus, I don't know what else he would have written for soloists to sing, but are there certain pieces that you kind of stay away from 
of handle because of range things or more or is it all kind of generally that's a good question doable um yeah no not really i don't actually cameron but there are some base arias that some go really low he wrote some extremely low like i think one even goes for like like a low sustained e oh wow yeah um which is quite incredible so you need a certain voice to do that yeah. But no, no, I actually think, I think he did know how to write for the voice. Yeah. I would contest that a little bit about Bach. Yeah. Um, and I love Bach, um, but I don't know, his writing seems very instrumental. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, he, I, know, I know he knew the voice. I mean, I know that we know that for a fact, but I think his writing didn't necessarily help the voice. I think you had to really learn to navigate how to yeah. sing Bach. And then, you know, it's like um, uh, the, um, uh, what is it? The um, Fuchs and, <laughs> I can't think. The, or, um... the, the, Fugue, the Bach fugues and or oh, Prelude and fugues. Oh yeah, yeah. So so they're almost like exercises, but you really learn your craft that way. Yeah. It's almost like Bach arias. You're going to end up being a good singer because you had to learn how to navigate that crazy <laughs> range or coloratura or the way it worked. Whereas Handel, which is also not easy to sing at all, yeah. I feel that he understood the voice a little better and what voices needed to do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, to answer your question, you know I most of his works and solo works uh, one can navigate okay. There are a few hours that are bigger set and I would not have younger students learn them. Sure. sure. Well, that's, I mean, that's super fascinating. I wouldn't have thought about that, but even thinking about, you know, uh, Messiah is obviously the most well-known versus B minor mass, you know, some of that, that coloratura stuff is, is yeah similar, but it, it's still like i don't know I, I i can understand that i see that yeah and you know i think of the b minor mass and those i mean and i've sang in pretty much in all of those choruses and i think i've been a soloist in all of the staple ones they were they were okay i think i think the ones i'm thinking of are mostly cantatas where they sure can be quite um <laughs> you've got lots of um <laughs> And yeah, that motion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is all you need to do because that's ex exactly what it right, is. Right. Right. Yeah. So I guess if you were gonna give give advice to either singers or voice teachers or choral directors about doing something, doing handle. Well, I'm gonna ask you a couple of advice questions in a row, I guess, yeah. because uh, talking to Daryl Babbage obviously needs some advice. So, so the uh, if, if you're talking to students, teachers, educators, singers, whoever about doing handle, what are some things you would tell them to really make it be moving the way that it moves you? Yes, um, good question. So. My last year at BYU, which was really interesting too, because um, 
I, I did not know the, so they did Theodora at BYU as their opera for the ver the very last opera that I was involved in at BYU. Oh, wow, that's cool. Which I didn't know I was leaving then, so it was really kind of for me like a really wonderful swan song because yeah, yeah, it was wow. like it kind of came full circle for me, and yeah. um, I had always thought it would be great if we could do Theodora by Handel at BYU, and look you know that that's not like a ticket bums on seats <laughs> thing that people are going to get, you know. Right. But I remember having the meeting with the voice faculty about the opera for next year. And one of the other voice faculty brought up Theodora. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> okay. So I pretended that it's like, oh yeah, it's nice opera. It's nice, yeah, it's fine. Because I didn't want to be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I'm sure we might have had a discussion before that meeting where Theodore was brought up, I'm sure. Because I think I must have mentioned it at some point, but one of the other faculty members brought it up as a possibility. And we, were, had, a, we had a lot of things on the table that we were discussing. Sure. By the end of the meeting, Theodora was the thing that was happening and it was two other faculty members that were pushing it more than me and I know they knew that I would be ecstatic but I kept very quiet right right <laughs> that was the last opera that we did at BYU before I left and uh wow um so Dallin Guthrie ended up he was a choral master student he ended up conducting the chorus yeah. and uh Alex Wood violin teacher yeah conducted the orchestra wow so it was unprecedented we never really had this combination before and i used to sit in on the choral rehearsals as well as the solo rehearsals and i've actually got clips still of the choral rehearsals and they did this stunning job so yeah. i was in on rehearsals and talk about uh, I mean, he did most of the work, but I would talk about things and what was expected and maybe to go online and look at this production. And they put their heart and soul into it. And there's this beautiful, tall vertical sound. Because yeah. a lot of those choruses in Theodora are very broad and majestic. Um, sure. And yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if I'm gonna answer your question pertinently, but- um, That's okay. Yeah, but um, just give them an idea, you know, go home and listen to Handel, listen to, other yep. choruses and what what's expected and uh, consonants are really important to me even in a big choral setting on yeah. in an operatic sense you know consonants are really important it can be a nice sonorous sound but that doesn't do anything uh, for me a good right. consonant springboards a really good vowel blah 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 all that stuff right so. right and that's yeah and i think that that kind of that sentiment really can for me what my own translation for my own life of what you're saying too is like don't be afraid to do your homework and 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 really like what is this it's not just okay it's not the coolest newest contemporary thing right or, right but man it really does have a place yes and a really expressive place so the director of the theodora that i saw back in 1998 um, he was an amazing director, but he got to know all of the chorus members individually. And quite often they would only really be paying right. attention to the soloists, but every chorus member was convicted to the text and the storyline and it makes a big difference too. So it wasn't just singing notes. It was 
text driven which is always a wonderful thing to do i mean that should be a, a given but that doesn't always happen yeah i think i think you're right i don't think it always happens and i think it can it can it ha and and it has to be accompanied by that you know the right aesthetic the right articulation the right sound yeah. when that combo happens i think it's it's pretty amazing yeah i agree so well daryl thank you it's late you should go to bed. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Well, this is fun. I mean, you could tell me, get me talk about handle. We could be here for four hours. So you're okay. Okay, thank you for joining us for our Early Music Monday 2.0 new format. Our composer profile on George Frederick Handel, talking about grit. I hope you're motivated. I hope you're pumped. I hope you're jazzed or uh, renaissanced or baroqued, whatever you know term you prefer, looted, sack-butted head sack butted yeah anyway and i hope you learned a lot from professor babbage i i love professor babbage he's such a great person and a wealth of knowledge and uh this falls into the trap but a genius and so i hope you uh, learned a lot from him Check us out on our website, soundofagesquire.com slash podcast slash events slash whatever. Please give us a rating and a review. Five stars is appropriate. It really helps us out. Share this episode with someone who think you think could use some, some upliftment, some motivation, and we'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday. <laughs>